Welcome to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. I'm Kim. How are you, Mark? How are you, Kim? I'm well, thanks. Great to always talk wine. I love talking wine with you. And uh, our first topic is something that is on our radar, but might not necessarily be on a lot of wine drinkers' radars. And that is the up-and-coming states from the rest of the United States that are now starting to produce some wine. Yes, emerging American wine regions. And usually people think California, Oregon, Washington. Sometimes you hear people mention New York, but those are the, the biggies you always hear. So mm-hmm. this article explored some other areas in the country that are trending well right now. And I think a lot of people don't know that wine has actually been made in a lot of different states for quite a while. And there are uh, wine industries using a lot of native grapes from all over the country, even places as far afield as South Dakota and Texas and places that you would think would be too hot or too cold to make wine. But there's a lot of it out there. When we've done history of wine classes, you mentioned some states, people are really shocked when they hear how far back winemaking goes in these Mm -hmm. other states. Yep. And it was interesting to me from a historical perspective to look at the wines that a lot of the colonists tried to make on the East Coast, but then also the fact that wine in California was started by Franciscan monks that came up through Mexico. And that is how Texas started its wine industry as well, which I've always found quite fascinating. When you look at the history, Kim, of the winemaking in the United States... Do you find historically Florida, they say, was the first location? That's what I've seen. That seen. Yeah, that there were a lot of you know, really early settlers, European settlers that tried to establish vineyards and wineries in Florida. And they might have had a couple of years of success, but then realized pretty quickly that it wasn't going to happen. And a lot of that has to do with the climate. Not only is it really hot, but it's very humid. And there are a lot of fungal diseases that really thrive in that environment that grapevines do very, very poorly with. So... There's a lot of factors why some states are better for growing wine grapes than others. California, Oregon, and Washington really are the top three because they have fantastic climates. But it's nice to see that there are some new places. So why don't we uh, talk about a couple of the other states that are starting to make some good wine? Yeah, so this article was from guildsom.com. I'm assuming this is the Sommelier Guild. Was this a European version? They have a lot of really interesting educational articles, and it is geared more towards sommeliers, but there's some great... I think knowledge that they provide and really well-written articles about wine topics from from all over the place. So I find this to be a really nice resource for looking stuff up. Yeah, a lot of good information in this article. And the first state they touched on was Texas, which we have been talking about lately because they were in the news for using grapes sourced from Napa and people were having an issue with that. But this dealt with actually areas in Texas that are specializing on their own grapes. Right, which I think is fabulous because Texas surprisingly does have a pretty good climate for growing grapes. That one thing that is sort of holding them back, like you just mentioned, is that a lot of the producers in Texas will be using grapes that they will have bought in from California and then blending. So because a lot of winemakers in Texas will use grapes that they've bought in from California, they can't actually sell those outside of the state of Texas. So I think that's putting a little bit of a damper on their exporting outside the state, if you will. And two things I saw that I didn't know. First off, the history was 1600s. 
1600s mm-hmm. when they first planted Yeah, it in it's a long time ago. Long time. And also the elevation stat. Did you see this, Kim, where there's actually between 3,000 and 8,000 foot areas, high elevations in Texas? And I think that this is one of the reasons why they can make good wine there. Because you look at other places in the world like Argentina and Chile and you look at their elevation and that is what gets them to be good wine producing areas. And elevation is important in other parts of the world as well that are either too hot or too cold to grow wine and the elevation allows it. So let's talk about, they were saying Bordeaux varietals are grown here. It's the 11th state for production in the United States, which is interesting. It does have AVAs, which are American viticultural areas. I think in the past we touched on this where states and regions can go to the government and say, I want to designate this specific site to be in a, a registered area, a viticational area. So they do have AVAs. Also, I think one of the biggest producers was called McPherson Cellars, or is that how you say it? Mm-hmm. McPherson? So it's something to watch, Texas. Sangiovese was also grown here. I've never seen a, a varietal grown Texas wine. I haven't either. Mostly I don't think we have any in Massachusetts yet. Source stuff, but yeah, there's nothing really distributed in the state. Next, they went to Michigan, which I was actually turned on the Michigan wines by, have you ever watched that show, The Curse of Oak Island? No. Where they go to Nova Scotia and they're trying to find gold on this island. But anyway, the gentleman who finances the whole thing has a winery in Michigan called Mari Vineyards. And every time he's on the show, he's wearing his thing. So I had Googled it to find it. It was in Michigan. So that's when my eyes were kind of open to this area. So what did you think about the Michigan story? I thought there were a lot of overlaps between Michigan wine growing climactically and New York State. So what it seems to be for most of the Michigan grown wines is that it really is relying on the microclimates around Lake Michigan. And a lot of wine regions, you'll find if you start looking at maps about where kind of the best wine places are, um, they're almost always situated near water. And for some place as far north and some place that can get as cold as Michigan, what happens is that the water actually keeps the area a little bit warmer so that, yes, they have really tough winters and they might not have very long growing seasons, but because they're so close to the lake, it keeps the climate a little bit more reasonable for growing grapes so that those vines can actually survive through those tough winters. Yeah, that's a great point to mention to our listeners because the water is regulating the climate a lot of times and Mm -hmm. it helps grow the grapes. They mentioned the seventh in production in the United States, so more production than Texas. They have 200 producers. So I was thinking, okay, well, what does Massachusetts have? So I looked at it and it says anywhere between 26 and 56 in Massachusetts. So we we have nothing. I, I feel like I know them all by name. <laughs> like yeah. It's, it's a, a pretty small wine industry that we have here in Massachusetts. So it's interesting to see some of these other bigger states that do. And they have been making wine in Michigan for quite a while. And I wasn't surprised that they're the seventh largest producer of wines as far as the states go. And once again, another state where most of it is only consumed and distributed within the state of Michigan. Mm-hmm. They also mentioned there's five viticultural areas. So then again, I think, well, yeah, Massachusetts, how many do we have? And technically- have any? Two, technically, they're saying two. Okay. There's the southeastern New England AVA, which incorporates many states. And actually, the, the, I saw some talk where it said Martha's Vineyard is an AVA. And I've oh. never, I have to look at that more, but I've never known that. Did yeah. you? No, I'll go look at that too. So that's that was interesting. interesting. And mostly, as you were saying, the climate here, they're mostly growing uh, cold, hardy grapes. Right. And they would have to, even just so that those vines would survive the winters. And there was a few local grapes 
that you would never see around here. But the main ones, Riesling, Pinot Grigio, uh, we see a lot from this area. Mm -hmm. Next, they moved to New York, which is actually surprisingly ranked third in the United States in production. So we have California, we have Washington, and we have New York. Yeah, there's a lot of wine that is grown in New York in some very different areas. So a lot of people know about the Finger Lakes, which produce a lot of white grape varieties, but are starting to move a little bit more into red grape varieties and a lot of sparkling wine production as well. But then you also need to consider Long Island. So the North Fork of Long Island makes a lot of wine and they have a really booming tourist industry for their vineyards as well. So that, but you put those two together, we don't see a ton of New York State wines here in Massachusetts, but it is very popular in the city and in other parts of New York as well. So they're, they're doing a pretty good job with their wine, their wine economy. And it was surprising. They said the 1800s is when New York started it does wine. seem a little bit later, like a lot I know. Later. I remember this when I was doing my research for my, my American wine class, and I was surprised that it was a little bit later. 200 years after these other states right? we're talking like about. Right, you think like Florida in the 1600s, but New York wasn't until the 1800s. For all the immigrants so. and everything going there, that's surprising to me. Maybe it's just like a documented thing, but uh, they were stating 400 producers, which is a lot, and 10 AVAs. But as you said, there's mainly Finger Lakes and Long Island. And I've had experience with a lot of Long Island wines where they would sell well for me, but I don't do well with Finger Lakes wine. It seems like it's a tourist area that people leave there and they they don't search these wines out when they come back. I think they're a little bit of a tougher sell. They do tend to be not inexpensive. I haven't seen too many that sell for under $20 a bottle retail, but I've had some some good luck with the quality of the wines. And I really do like a lot of the sparklers that are out there. And I'm looking forward to investigating some of those wineries a little bit more. So the sparklers are mostly Finger Lakes region. Mostly talking, Finger right? Lakes. Yeah. Yep. And so it's a lot of champagne style, but then a lot of German sect style. That's the sparkling wines out of Germany, which are Riesling based. So I think the climate is really perfect for sparkling wines because they have a lot of racy acidity to them. Riesling can grow very, very nicely up there. But then you also do see some Pinot Noir, some Chardonnay and wines that have some some good ageability to them as well. Yeah, once again, a cold climate, so cold climate grapes. But on Long Island, they grow a lot of Cab Franc, Berlot, Sauve Blanc. So different varietals for different regions. Right. And again, here we're getting back to that proximity to water. So the the reason why they can grow these warmer climate grapes on the North Fork of Long Island is because there it's this protected area with the ocean around them and it actually makes it a little bit warmer and a little bit easier to grow those red grapes. And last, they talked about Arizona. Now, this is a state you really don't hear people raving or ever saying they've tried wine mm -mm. from. I was surprised to see Arizona on this list. I have had some sparkling wines from, I believe it's New Mexico, but I've never had anything from Arizona. A lot of people actually vacation there and and I don't hear them come back saying, well, I had this. <laughs> I had some local know? wines when yeah. I was out in Arizona. I hear them mostly saying they're getting wines cheap at, uh, they have like chains that's huge to discount wine there. Uh, so I hear that more than local. But they have 100 producers, which again, more than Massachusetts. Also, they have one AVA that makes like 70% of the total production. Mm -hmm. So that's huge. And it seems like they have very interesting soil types and interesting terroir in Arizona, which hopefully some winemakers will start investigating a little bit more. Grape varieties grow best in what soil types and will start producing some interesting things that maybe we'll see out here. 
and big history, 1600s again, compared mm-hmm. to what we were talking earlier. And also, I, the one thing I thought was interesting with this state is they have their own Vignerons Alliance. So to become a certified Arizona winery, you have to go through this group for them to accept you as using local or locally owned grown grapes when you make your wine. So I think that's a good thing. It's yeah. almost similar to the Massachusetts Small Growers Association. But it's nice assume. to see them taking it seriously and that creates a really good foundation for their industry as they grow it going forward. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We're your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you'd like more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And if you'd like to follow us more on Facebook, please find us at The Wonderful World of Wine. Once again, we're going to talk about an article that was in one of our favorite sites, winefoley.com. And they were talking about the origins of toasting a glass and history behind this, Kim, was pretty amazing. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I always love the historical, the archaeological evidence for wine drinking and all the culture that goes around it. This was an interesting article because it ties the past with the present. Yeah, and they dated this back to originated 500 to 700 B.C., in the region of Georgia. Right. And Georgia traditionally is where we think wine started. Between 5,000, 7,000, 8,000 years ago, we have the first archaeological evidence for the production of wine. And now this is sort of an interesting little statue for all the other things that go along with drinking wine, like toasting. Yes. And they had historical, I like the term, it was called the hype guy, right? Right. The hype guy. The toast master. (laughs) So at a feast, this gentleman would do all the talking. I guess he was the one who could really talk. It's kind of like that, like the MC. He was like, he's like the MC of the party and he's the one who's getting everyone to talk to each other and do toasts. And this kind of reminded me of wedding where you have someone who takes the mic and is trying to get people involved. So I don't know. It sounds kind of fun. Yeah. And his his role was basically to read to the audience. And they, they had an actual term for him. Was it Tomata? Tomata. Tomata. Not tomato. Tomata. Tomata. (laughs) Tomata. So good name. And this person would start by doing a toast and he would have to, or he, I assume it was he, would have to drink the whole glass after he read something. And then the next guests would do a toast and they would everybody would then again sip Uh, but it was interesting saying this tonada could not get drunk it was disrespectful (laughs) to get drunk so gotta gotta keep a hold of yourself which is opposite of what you see at weddings when the (laughs) the guy's giving the toast he's pretty sauced usually right what i thought was interesting about this from a, a cultural perspective is that yes this example is from georgia and it's it's cool to see that we have this archaeological evidence that there's still this thing that's going on today that ties it here. But I've seen this in other cultures as well. There's a similar toast tradition in Japan where, you know, you have this person who's kind of a toastmaster who sort of leads and will take a drink and will say something and then it kind of has to go around the room. So I thought that that was interesting to me that there's this one tradition in this one place, but this is sort of a, a universal toasting, drinking sort of a situation. Yeah, there were some other historical things I saw in the past where originally they were thinking when you toasted, you clinked the glasses. It had something to do with poison. So if I clinked your glass to toast you, maybe if you poisoned me, some would overflow into your glass. So there was some talk about that was originally mm-hmm. the toast thing. There was also something about the 17th century where they would have wine with spiced toast. So somehow it was related to a toast. Oh, that's so interesting. That one I always thought was a good one. And then 
then something about the the word originated by celebrating a lady's honor. So if there was a lady in the room and you had drinks in your hand, you would honor the woman. Hmm, so interesting. a lot of historical behind that. But I love the way Wine Folly uh, explained and went into and showed little statues, the historical statues. Our next topic of conversation is a term that comes up every once in a while in wine circles, and it's the idea of the quote-unquote super taster, which you might think, oh, the idea of I'm a super taster, it's like, that's my superpower, you know, I'm, I'm really good at tasting. But it's a little counterintuitive because the idea of the super taster is a bit of a misconception. It's someone who is actually super sensitive to tastes so that things don't necessarily always taste good to them. Yeah, and when I hear this term, I'm always jealous because I wish I was a super taster. But, but you might not want to be a super taster. Yeah, well, once again, Kim, women are are known to be better tasters than men. So I'll start with that. Okay, thank you. We'll concede again. (laughs) I have been told that I'm a very good taster. And I think a lot of it, physiologically, women have more taster receptors. Is that the best way to explain it? I think so, yeah. So there are people, everybody has taste buds. And then you have these little kind of like mini organs that are on your tongue that your taste buds reside within. And some people just have more of these. So what ends up happening is that they tend to be more sensitive to the the actual tastes, so sweet and bitter and sour and salty and umami. And what ends up happening is that those flavors are magnified for those tasters. So something like coffee that has a lot of bitter element to it can taste perfectly pleasant to a whole bunch of the population. But if you're a super taster, it may taste too bitter. And so then you're not end up ending up getting any enjoyment out of it. So there is a little test going around the internet, Kim. Have you ever done this with the pudding... I believe you put a dye on your tongue and then yeah, you I haven't swatch actually done it. it. No, to see how no. many more no. of these I taste should. buds you have. I should. I don't I am assuming that I am not a super taster because I like pretty much everything. There are a couple of foods that I don't like, but I am I'm overwhelmingly like I'll eat pretty much anything. So I, I just think that I have trained my palate over the course of my career to be able to pick out different wine things and different flavors and food, but I don't think that I'm terribly susceptible. Like I was never a picky eater or or any of that. So I actually might be on the lower side because a lot of things that are bitter like espresso and dark chocolate, those things don't bother me at all. I think that's a good point because you can have all these extra taste buds and still not be able to explain what you're tasting in wine. Right. So you're picking a bunch more things up, but you can't tell me what you're tasting. Right. Wine tasting ability, it, it's not an innate ability. I think some people probably are more, you know, might have more of a talent for it, but it really, it takes practice. It's more of a developed skill, I think, than than it is just something that people are born with. And I liked how the the people on this, uh, it was backlabel.com, they explained that 25% of the population are super tasters, 25% are non-tasters, and then 50% are just average tasters. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, you and I are probably right there in the middle. Yeah. Well, and then we always talk about tasting wine, building up your palate. And I think if you taste, the more you taste of anything, the better you will be. So you could be a super taster by experience, correct? You believe that? But not a super taster. Not a super taster. That's what taster. this article is talking about is the term super taster you know we we kind of bandy this term around a lot but it's really a it's a problem i think if you're a super taster because you're not going to like things like yeah like you know red wine or cabbage or (laughs) coffee 
Well, it's interesting because I think I told you in the past there was a company that was doing the DNA test yes. for your taste, and uh-huh. I did the I did the test. Oh, what and, were your results? Well, it has certain you have certain genes that are related to things in in what you taste in wine. So one of the tests was like how you perceive coffee, cilantro. Uh, um, yes, the dreaded you, cilantro. Yes, test. cilantro test. The burning sensations if you get burning sensations, and it was all from genes. So it's really interesting. And I did it, and I I really haven't deciphered all the results, but huh. I thought it was going to tell me, yeah, you're a super taster yeah. because you have super taster gene. But right, I wonder how much of that taste sensitivity is genetic and how much of it is not. So that, that would definitely be something that would be interesting to look into. And I know one of them had to do with sweet, and it said you have this one gene that says you like sweet things, you know, chocolate or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I agreed with that. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably, you know, 90% of the human race really likes sweet things. So that might not come as any surprise. You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. To find out more information about Mark, you can visit him at franklinliquors.com. And for more information about myself, you can go to vinitaswineworks.com. A really fun and interesting article that we ran across from the Chicago Tribune was posing the question of, why do Americans not drink at lunch? Hmm. Drink wine at lunch. Drink wine at lunch. We don't care about the other stuff. <laughs> you don't care about the martinis at lunch? No. But this is an interesting question. You know, we don't as a, as a culture, drink alcoholic beverages at lunch. And a lot of other places, they do. You know, in Italy, you drink wine at lunch. In France, you drink wine at lunch. I'm sure in Spain, it's the same exact way. But there is this sort of anti-drinking culture here in America. Yeah, and I think they hit it right on the head in this article, kind of comparing EU versus the Americans. And my Italian buddies will say, it's it's not alcohol at lunch, it's a beverage with lunch. Mm-hmm. So they're drinking all day because it's, it's a beverage they're used to. United States, that's not... Not, not the culture. Right. And wine in that context is part of the meal and usually is and sometimes is viewed, viewed as just another food part of the meal. And we don't tend to view alcohol that way here, you know, uh, especially with our like cocktail culture. It's not something that is considered a food product. It is before a party or before a big meal, but at dinner. But a lot of this article I thought was interesting that it ties it into the fact that people are at work at this time of the day. And our culture is very focused on work worshiping culture and that a lot of people have a problem with not just being a little bit looser and maybe not all with it when you go back to work after lunch, but the fact that alcohol is downtime. So Americans drink as a relaxation activity, and that doesn't necessarily fit with the idea of, oh, I still have another four or five hours of work to go back to after lunch. So I can I can see that. Yeah, the work thing is huge. And they, they also mentioned weight loss. Maybe you're on a diet or you're trying to watch your weight, so you're not having that drink at lunch. You're saving it for later on in the day. I don't know if I buy that one. We're no. a pretty fat country. Well, <laughs> it, it, made, it made sense to me why one of the reasons would be. And then the last thing they said, well, the cost. Usually lunch is thought of as I'm, I'm going to a quick lunch. It's, it's a value thing. Restaurants always make the meals a little less expensive at lunch. Mm-hmm. So why add that expensive drink? Yeah, I can... I I can see that. I I don't I don't know. I mean, there's I feel there's a lot of disapproval around having an alcoholic beverage at lunch. And I've been known to indulge in a glass of wine at lunchtime. And sometimes I'm the only one doing it. 
and and it's a, it can be a little awkward but i'm like well i'm the wine lady so i'm gonna have a glass of wine with lunch yeah well in our business i mean br- wine at breakfast that's right? true so, yeah I mean, those lunch, those nine thirty wine tastings Oof. lunch is late for us <laughs> and funny they also said this doesn't take effect if you're on vacation because usually you're on vacation you'll have a, a a beverage with your lunch and it really is sort of a a luxurious feeling when you are on vacation and you can have, you know, a, you can split a carafe of wine with whoever you happen to be traveling with, whether it's, you know, spouse or family or friends. And it does make you feel like you are having a little vacation within your vacation. So I I think that they are onto something where they're tying the whole idea of work time is work time and drinking is not something that is often associated with work during the daytime and that this feeling of, um, relaxation and luxury isn't something that Americans generally tend to have go hand in hand with their work time. And I was thinking restaurants must agree with this because you usually don't, you're not forced the wine menu usually at lunch. Do do you feel that, Kim, when you go out for lunch? Not usually. Sometimes. I mean, I I think a lot of times it does depend on the restaurant. So if it's a restaurant with a pretty robust wine program, then they might, but yeah, not not often. I think they push more cocktails. Like, do you want a sangria or something? Mm -hmm. Maybe or a, a beer. lighter. Yeah, yeah. But never pushing the wine. So, you know, maybe they're onto this and they know people don't accept it at lunch. Maybe. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. Please find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Leave us your comments and your questions, and we will be back again with you next week.